You're listening to Auburn Innovations, a podcast brought to you by ABA Technologies. This month on Thought Leaders, we're talking with Dr. Stephanie Peterson, the chair of the Department of Psychology at Western Michigan University. On this first episode, we're going to hear from Dr. Peterson about her journey into behavior analysis and how she got to where she is today. I'm talking with Dr. Stephanie Peterson today, and I'm very excited about this because I've got to spend a lot of time with with Stephanie over the years ago now. Mm -hmm. It's been a minute, Um, but I'm really excited for her to talk some more about her history and dive in deeper to how she got started in the field and how she got to where she is now. So thank you and welcome. Oh, thank, thanks for asking me, Sean. I appreciate it. It's, of course, an honor. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm very, very excited. And I, was, I, I loved hearing the responses. I loved hearing your response specifically, too. I was like, oh, thank goodness. Because, um, <laughs> to me, you are a thought leader. And a lot of the work that you've done is it's pivotal. And even some of the work that we were talking about right before this. Um, but so I'll let you take it over and kind of how did you get into the field where did you come from sure uh so first of all it's really intimidating to be uh said you're a thought leader because (laughs) most of the time I gotta be honest I feel like I'm just muddling through and trying to figure things out Um, it's good to hear that though (laughs) a lot of people you know what I mean like I still like to hear that from people there because it makes us feel better about ourselves too. Yeah. Well, you know, especially in the, all the, with all the stuff that's going on these days, it's kind of like just every day trying to uh, analyze your, your environment and your surroundings and figure out what the next best thing to do is giving it a try and hoping it works and, you know, making the best decisions you can in the moment. So uh, hopefully, hopefully everything works out. Okay. (laughs) So anyway, in terms of, um, where I came from, you know, Bill Heward, when I worked at Ohio State, he always did this teleconference seminar. And he would always say to the people we were interviewing, so tell us, tell us how you got here. Like, what's, what's your story? And I always loved hearing the stories from everybody. Um, And it was always interesting to see how far back people went to start telling their story. So I have to go way back. I hope that's okay. I'll try not to 100%, be too long-winded. <laughs> 100% okay. Like I was born. No, I'm not going to go quite that far Hey, back, Jose, <laughs> Jose started while, when he was a child in Cuba. So. Okay. Well, fair enough. There you go. I was born in Iowa City, Iowa, so I, I can start there. But um, probably the the place to really start for me is when I was a junior in high school. And... Um, So I was raised in a Catholic family and my parents sent me to Catholic schools ever since third grade. And I went to a Catholic high school and, um, you know, pretty much in high school in your freshman and sophomore year, you don't get a lot of choice about what classes you get to take. You just have certain classes you have to take. But by the time you get to your junior year, uh, at least for us, we had a little bit of choice about some of our classes. And in particular, we had, we always had to take religion class every semester. That wasn't a choice. But by the time I was a junior, you got to have a little bit of choice about what your religion class was. And there was a class that they offered that they referred to as Christian in the world. And 
the idea behind this class is that rather than sitting through a formal course with a teacher, you would volunteer your time somewhere. And I think we had to do journal entries or something, some kind of reflections on that. But, um, and you know, I was a junior and I was like, I had just turned 16, so I had my driver's license and I was very fortunate to have a vehicle to drive myself to school in. And so it was very reinforcing to think about being able to go drive your car in the middle of the day. And we also had a closed campus, so we were not allowed to like leave for lunch or things like that. So being able to say, yes, I'm gonna volunteer some time somewhere and I get to leave campus legally and I can drive my car and go do something else for a while is pretty, that's pretty powerful MO. Uh, so I signed up for that class. And I always joke like, yeah, it was all the right reasons not <laughs> to sign up for a Christian in the world class. I mean, all of us at 16 right. probably had the same thoughts. So. Yeah. So I started thinking about like where I wanted to do this volunteer work. And some people were doing it at old folks homes and so forth. And I'm not really sure why this was so intriguing to me, but one of my friends had a little sister who had very severe disabilities and didn't live at home, lived in a care facility, but attended school at a, um, a school for kids with severe disabilities. It, back then in Iowa, kids who had severe disabilities went to a segregated school. And I had never been to that school. Honestly, I had never even met my friend's sister because she didn't live with her. Um, I had heard about her and I really don't know why, but for some reason that was very interesting to me. And I said, I think I'm going to see if I can volunteer at that school. My dad was a physician and I had it in my head that I wanted to be a physician. Maybe I would be a pediatrician because I really did like kids. I was the oldest child in my family. I was the oldest child of all the grandchildren uh, on both sides of my family. Yeah, so I had a lot of like caretaking that I did for kids, but I didn't really mind it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that. Um, so for some reason, I thought it would be fun to volunteer at this school, and I did. Um, I did not volunteer. I didn't get placed in my friend's sister's classroom, but I was in the building. And I was working with a group of kids who were like nine to 11 or 12 years old. You know, they had pretty significant disabilities. A lot of them had cerebral palsy. They used wheelchairs. You had to toilet them. Um, I'm sure some of them had pretty significant autism, although back then that wasn't a very common diagnosis for kids. Um, and so it was a lot of positioning kids into different positions and working on some different programs with them. Uh, I do remember this one kid being positioned, laying on his side and having a micro switch in front of him and pressing it to activate a toy. And it was also connected to a cassette tape player, although there was no cassette in the player but it would activate the tape player so that um, the counter numbers would turn. And that was our way of taking data on how long the switch had been activated, which I thought was really interesting. And I'll circle back to that later. I know it seems like a weird detail to talk about, but it has relevance later. Um, and we, so I volunteered there and I really enjoyed working with those kids. 
um, I learned a lot from those teachers. And interestingly, it was back in the day, this was, this was probably about 1981 or 82. Um, I'm dating myself there. So it was before Brian Awadis, you know, just about the time Brian Awadis' paper was coming out on functional analysis. So obviously, people didn't have a lot of ways of dealing with problem behavior that were the proactive and reinforcement-based procedures we had now. So there were some behavioral reduction procedures we used that were overcorrection, um, pre presentation of aversives, quite frankly. Um, and I remember thinking back then, this is kind of weird. Like the overcorrection thing was kind of weird to me. If a kid hits his, himself in the head, I was supposed to pump the arm up and down like 10 times every time the kid did that. And I always thought that's kind of weird, but you know, I was 16. I did what my teachers and supervisors directed me to do, but I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I really loved those kids. And the teacher, the principal and the teachers ended up asking me if I would like to work there in the summer as a teacher's aide. And so I did. I ended up getting a job working there in the summer. And then I also took a job working at, the, at this, uh, it was called an ICFMR, which stood for Intermediate Care Facility for Individuals with Mental Retardation. Um, and so my friend's little sister, that's where she actually lived in, in this place. And so on the weekends, every other weekend, I worked there. And that was a lot of like showering people, getting them out of bed, um, feeding them trying to do their positioning programs and on the weekends they were very short staffed and as you might suspect the staff there were not very well trained um you know it was a minimum wage job and so i got to see this contrast between some, some of the kids who were at the school also lived at this facility so i got to see a lot of contrast about how kids were treated at school versus at this facility and to be quite frank, I was pretty appalled at some of the stuff that went on at the facility. I think people were really well-meaning and well-intentioned, but uh, the systems that were in place there did not support a lot of good caregiver behavior. And I remember one day uh, being assigned to work with my friend's little sister. And at school, she, I, I, like I said, I didn't work in her classroom at school, but I did see her at the school. And and she ate, uh, but she had hydrocephaly and she ate slowly and needed a lot of time. And at the care facility, time was always of the essence because we were short staffed. And so people would try to feed her quickly and she would kind of shut down and not want to eat quickly. And so I watched another staff member uh, take her and say, okay, we're giving up on feeding her this uh, mashed up food. We're just going to feed her the liquid formula because it's faster. And she didn't like the liquid formula, so she would clamp her mouth shut and not want to eat it. And so I would watch them take her wheelchair and tip it backwards into their lap so that she was laying on her back. And they would plug her nose to get her to open her mouth and use a, like a very large syringe, plastic syringe, to put the formula into her mouth and they would hold her nose till she would swallow. And it was so appalling to me. Um, I would go home in tears and tell my dad that this was not okay with what I was seeing. And because he was a physician in town, I was like, do something. <laughs> he said, I can't do anything. I have nothing to do at that place. 
and I remember saying to him at that time, uh, I'm going to make it my mission in life to make sure that kids with disabilities are never treated that way on my watch. So like, I think about that Christian in the world experience and it, what turned out like to be an experience that I had for all the wrong reasons, <laughs> um, was a very pivotal experience in my life and really gave me direction for what I wanted to do for the rest of my career. Right. I mean, I, I've never forgotten that even when I talk about what I witnessed that day, it makes me choke up a little bit. And um, so from there, I ended up graduating from high school and going to college. And my first year, I started at Northwestern University and uh, started in the pre-med track. So I was taking chemistry and calculus and all that kind of stuff and absolutely hated it. I hated some of those classes. Um, it had nothing to do with kids with disabilities anymore. And I started losing a lot of motivation. And somewhere in that first year, I, about my third, we were on the quarter system there. So about the third quarter, as I was enrolling for classes, I said to myself, like, I don't want to be a pre-med. I think I want to be a teacher. But Northwestern didn't have a teaching program. So I signed up for classes in speech pathology, and I signed up for some classes in, um, what else did I do? Speech pathology and, oh, they had some classes in learning disabilities. And so I signed up for those and I really dug the speech pathology classes. The learning disabilities class was okay. Uh, but by the end of that year, I really, it had, that had confirmed that I wanted to be a, a special ed teacher. So I transferred to the University of Iowa. Um, ended up completing the special education major there. And at the University of Iowa at that time, you got certified to be a K through eight general education teacher. And then you picked up a special education endorsement in addition. And so that was a, a K through, I can't remember if that was K through eight or K through 12, but it was a mild, moderate mental disabilities certification. Um, we were very categorically certified back then. So I finished my undergrad and ended up applying for jobs, was offered two jobs uh, very soon after I filled out applications. One of them happened to be back at that same school that I had volunteered at in my Christian in the World experience. And um, that the, obviously those classrooms were severe, profound disabilities classrooms, and my certificate was mild, moderate. So I would have to go back and get another certificate at the graduate level to do severe profound, uh, which was okay with me. Um, I didn't mind that. However, the only university in Iowa at that time who offered that certification was the University of Northern Iowa. I wasn't super keen on going to the University of Northern Iowa for that, although it was definitely a drivable distance. Um, and then I, another job that I was offered was uh, what they called a multi-categorical special education classroom which was uh, there were kids with mild, moderate disabilities, but there were also kids with learning disabilities, kids with behavior disorders, and kids with communication disorders. So it required a multi-categorical certificate, which also meant I had to go back for another certificate, which was also fine with me, but I could choose the certificate I wanted. I could do uh, learning disabilities, I could do behavior disorders, and those I could all get at the University of Iowa, 
which is if I wanted to go to graduate school, which I more preferred. So I ended up taking that job. Um, and then starting, I started on my master's degree in learning disabilities, but for me, it felt like a rehash of all the mild, moderate mental disability things. And so I ended up switching over to uh, getting my certificate in emotional behavior disorders instead and found that very intriguing. I really always thought it was interesting to talk about challenging behavior. And so I got that certification. Uh, and that was at the master's level. So what I was doing was teaching full time and taking one class at a time. So it took me four years to get my master's degree. And in that last year, I took a class from Dave Wacker, which was in behavioral assessment. And um, I never really considered my undergraduate degree behavior analytic in nature um, until I took that class. And that class was a hardcore behavior analysis, behavioral assessment class. And everything Dave talked about, I realized like we had learned about collecting data in my undergrad program. We had learned about AB designs. We had learned about reversal designs and multiple baseline designs. So when Dave was teaching this behavioral assessment class and going over all that stuff at the graduate level, I was like, yeah, I, I remember learning this stuff in my undergrad and a, a little bit was a rehash and then a lot of it was taking me to a deeper level of understanding about that stuff. And then he taught us about the alternating treatments design and really got me thinking more about inter-rater agreement and issues of validity and reliability and like so that was really cool and I dug that class so much and I realized that my undergraduate degree actually was fairly behavioral in nature even though nobody labeled it as such. Um, so uh, John Northrup was my TA for that class and I had to do a project and so Linda Cooper Brown was also one of Dave Wacker's students at that time. And um, so she helped me do a little study in my classroom as my project. And we ended up publishing that in Teaching Exceptional Children, which was kind of cool. But I just really loved working with him. And throughout the class, he talked about these clinics that he ran. And one of them was called a behavior management clinic that met on Fridays. And had kids who were like, I think most of them were four, five, six, seven, eight years old in that sort of range. And they were kind of oppositional defiant kids and driving their parents crazy because they wouldn't eat or sleep or mind. <laughs> so uh, we would, he was doing evaluations of that and making recommendations. And that sounded really interesting to me. And he invited me to participate in his clinic over the summer and I was uh, having to student teach again for the third time uh, also to finish that endorsement that I wanted. And so I was student teaching in a classroom during the summer, but they let me out of Fridays to go work in his clinic as part of my student teaching, which was awesome. And I had a great time working in that clinic, learned so much, took, you know, took a lot of data. Jay Harding and I were working in that clinic together and there are evaluations, you know, the observation room is here and there's evaluations going on on either side and it's noisy and it's chaos and it was awesome. We, we just got so much done. And at the end of that experience, I had said to Dave, uh, you know, I feel kind of bummed out because 
my very last class in my master's program with you, and it was the one that excited me the most. I've now had this experience working in your clinic, and now I'm going to graduate with my master's degree, which is great. But um, so I'm going to go back to teaching in the fall, and I won't be in school, and I'm going to really miss this. Uh, I'm feeling a little down <laughs> about all of that. And he said to me, well, why don't you get a PhD? And I was like, why would I do that? Like, uh, there are no classroom teachers with PhDs, so I don't know what I would do with that. I don't want to be a principal or superintendent, which were the only people I knew with PhDs at that time. Um, and he said, well, you know, you could teach at the college level. That was a thought that had never occurred to me in a million years to do. And I said, well, that's interesting. Tell me some more about that. And he did. You know, this is like August, mind you, right? Because I'm just wrapping up summer school. And um, I said, that sounds like really cool. Um, what would it take for me to do a PhD? And so we started talking about that. And I ended up enrolling in the PhD program at the University of Iowa and calling my principal where I was supposed to start school in like a month um, and saying, so what would it look like if I didn't come back? I don't want to leave you hanging high and dry. You know, I had had a student teacher in my classroom in the spring. So we called her and she said, I can take over your classroom for a year. So I took a year's leave of absence from my teaching job and my former student teacher taught my kids. And I went back to school and I started working with Dave Wacker and Gary Sasso and Joe Henriksen, uh, who were all awesome to me. So I, um, and I worked over in Dave's other clinics that were the self, at that time it was called the Self-Injurious and Aggressive Behavior Service, doing evaluations of people with developmental disabilities who had severe aggression and self-injury. And shortly prior to me starting that, Brian Nawada had come out and talked to Dave about functional analysis. And he thought that sounded a lot better than just doing interviews and stuff during clinic visits. And so he and John Northup had been working on the brief functional analysis technology when I was kind of coming into clinic. And so we were playing around with the brief FAs and running those. And that was just an amazing experience. And then by my second year, Dave had, uh, gotten a couple of grants, one through NIDR and one through NIH, and he hired Jay Harding to be the um, project manager for the NIH grant, and he hired me to be the project manager for the NIDR grant. So I worked on his grant then for two years, driving all over the state of Iowa and doing FAs in kids' homes, helping families implement um, FCT, functional communication training, and other reinforcement-based procedures for uh, problem behavior. And I remember sitting around a table talking about research with Dave one day, and we were reading one of the articles that he and Wendy Berg had written. And it was about using microswitches <laughs> uh, to get kids to activate toys and I realized at that time that probably when I was that junior in high school volunteering in that classroom, watching that kid press the micro switch to activate that toy, and they had the tape player going to take data, on, and I would write down the counter numbers that I think I was maybe taking data for one of his studies. <laughs> 
back then. So I thought that was really funny that because he was he and his team were doing some work in that school. If you read that article by Gary Sasso about doing it was one of the first articles on doing functional analysis in classrooms. Some of the teachers that they talk about in that article were in the school building that I was doing my volunteer work in. That's so, so crazy. <laughs> so That's so crazy. Yeah, that was kind of interesting to reflect on. Um, so I think I was being trained to be a behavior analyst, maybe right from the get-go and just didn't know it. Like, <laughs> Well, I mean, if you talk about Skinner and free will and just setting up the contingent like the contingencies are just there yeah like that was hey that was one of them that was yeah. a learning experience that's it's it really so was. cool to think about though because <laughs> you never I mean you probably never would have thought about that right I mean, even back I, I mean I worked in group homes at when I was at Western um and when I was an undergrad mm -hmm. and in an adult day program and until I got into the behavior analysis program, I don't think I would have thought about half of the stuff I thought about when I was working with them. So that's so, that's so crazy how that yeah. all just like intertwined. Yeah, it just like snuck into my life and uh, shaped so much of how things went for me, mm -hmm. I guess, on a very serendipitous level. And I think like going back to Bill Heward starting out those um, teleconference seminars with, you know, how'd you get here today? And listening to lots of people tell their stories like that. One observation I've had is for many people, they have these very serendipitous things that happened in their lives that shaped them to become behavior analysts. And I think a lot of us just fell into it and got lucky, you know, with being in the right place at the right time and then doing good work while we were there and paying yeah. attention to what was happening around us. So, I, I mean, I, I'm not a really firm believer in luck uh, other than you find yourself in certain circumstances. And, and I think you have to make your own luck by, yeah. by behaving in those conditions and, and attuning yourself to the contingencies that are in place. And which further helps shape your behavior. So uh, yeah, and reflecting back on it, I go, yeah, I was kind of lucky to have some of these experiences. And at the same time, I think I did whatever I could to do good work in those environments and, you know, just pay attention to what was going on around me and, and let that shape my behavior in really positive ways. Well, and I mean, and you saw the need too, you, when you were in, like the summer program that you were working in in high school and you saw how people were being treated mm -hmm. and you're like, this isn't right. I, I don't want this to happen. I want to go do something about it too. Um, because I mean, even from then until, so I started in the day program and part of that was feeding. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like, I mean, we only get a certain amount of time to feed these individuals. And I mean, they're multiple, it's, it's multiple disabilities. It's physical, it's intellectual, it's, and not all of them eat very quickly. Right. Um, but yeah, not all of them eat very quickly. And so I fully understand the types of contingencies that could force people to be put into situations 
that are not ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are ways to mitigate those risks. And by the time I got to the point where I was working with these individuals, luckily, <laughs> where I was working was actually for Western. Um, but luckily, where I was working, we didn't have to, you know, encounter those types of contingencies to where no, they need to be fed right now. Mm -hmm. And so, no, it's really, I mean, even in, you know what I mean? Like it's cool. It's just neat to see the progression of you working in them when you were that age. And then me working in them when I was that age and just to see the difference is really. Well, and I think back to like, um, when I was, when I was finishing my master's degree and Dave was saying, why didn't you do a PhD? One of the things that was difficult for me about that decision was, you know, I really, I love working with the kids. And um, so the thought of leaving that and going to work with like typically developing adults, <laughs> like teacher training programs, which is how I started my career. That was a little hard transition. And, but but the thing that helped me make that decision was like, I really liked working with that student teacher who had been in my classroom right before I made the decision to leave teaching. And, you know, remember how I'd said, I'm, I, I'm not going to let this happen to people with disabilities on my watch. Like it started to occur to me, well, by teaching others to do this job, I might be able to impact more children than I could being a teacher and just, you know, impacting the ones that come through my classroom. Um, so then when I took my, my second teaching job was at Utah State. My first one was at Gonzaga, and then I went to Utah State, and the department chair there who hired me made a comment to me like, I think maybe you'll be the next department chair here. And I said, uh, I can think of a fate no worse than that, <laughs> because... Uh, my reinforcers are all in working with the kids, doing my research, working with the students and teaching them. Well, don't tell anybody what your current job title I, is. That's then. what I think is so <laughs> ironic. Um, and, I, and that was Chuck Salzberg who said that to me. And um, then we went, we used to ride horses together a lot. And one day we were on a horseback ride and we were having this conversation um, and I told him, like, I really think that being a department chair is about the worst thing that could happen to me. And um, he explained to me back then, he said, you know, the thing is your reinforcers change over time as you grow in your career. And your reinforcers may be different at that time. And I, I still, I was too junior in my career. I was only like in my fifth year as a professor. So it was very hard for me to understand this back then, but he said, you know, you may, your reinforcers may change from doing the research and working directly with students to leaving a legacy behind you for an impact that you had on the field or the department that you're working in. And I was like, yeah, not buying it. (laughs) I don't, I don't think my reinforcers will ever change like that. Um, and yet here I am now in that role. Uh, and I would say that my reinforcers are still in the research and working with the students, but there are, so those haven't gone away, but the added reinforcers of 
serving the department in a way that helps ensure like the longevity of the department and the health of the department so that long after I'm dead and gone, things continue like being able to play a role in that and do things that support my colleagues to be able to do their jobs well is really important to me also. Um, so I do enjoy the opportunities of helping shape the future directions of the program and helping provide the support and I guess nurturing is one way to look at it for the other faculty in the department to keep doing their good work with students and research. You are insanely busy <laughs> and that's putting it lightly and you still make time. You have a full graduate lab that you are overseeing. You're part of all of their research. You are so involved still and it's just like to actually see you work firsthand is just inspiring. The amount of stuff that you can get done is absolutely insane. And like, it's just so cool to see because like you said, your reinforcers haven't necessarily like changed. They might've been, some might've been added <laughs> on top of previous ones. Um, but at least from, you know, the outside, you might not get as much as you would want, but I mean, you still have a ton of research going on in your labs and some really, really cool research going on. And you're producing these students who are, I mean, I know some of your students just graduated and are starting helping start their own programs as well, which is really cool. Um, but I mean, how did you get to Western? You named a couple other of the colleges, and you and you mentioned you started as a teacher trainer. Mm -hmm. And I know that you know I've read a lot of your literature, and I still have um, yours and Lloyd's book on my shelf that I was trained in as well. But what happened after your PhD? Yeah, uh, so <laughs> there's kind of some funny stories along that path too. Uh, it's funny because the year before I graduated there was this job posted at Gonzaga that I was like, oh my God, this is the most perfect job for me. And, but too bad I'm a year away from graduating. And Dave's like, what the hell, apply anyway, you know? So you never know what's gonna happen. Um, at least they'll know you're interested and next year if there's an opportunity, they'll already have you in, in mind. And I was like, okay. So I put in my application, um, because it was like a behavior analytics special education program that had a lot of direct instruction, which I was trained in and uh, very much supportive of and precision teaching. I was just like a great faculty. And so I was like, all right. So I put my application in and um, you know, they were like, sorry, you're not qualified because you haven't graduated yet. You still have a year to go. Uh, and besides that, we hired someone else. And I remember being so crushed that they, that they hired someone. Like, I was like praying they would have a failed search so that next year they would be searching again. So I was really crushed when I found out that they had already hired somebody. So fast forward a year, and now I am graduating and, and applying for jobs. And lo and behold, the same ad comes out. And I'm like, totally applying for that. So I put my application in. And, uh, received an interview very quickly. It was the first interview I got. 
and they flew me out there after a phone interview. They flew me out there. I had a great interview. So much fun. I just love that faculty and the campus is great. The university was awesome. They offered me the job while I was there. Like hadn't even left Spokane and they offered yeah. me the job. And I, and so I got back on like Saturday from that interview and I didn't call Dave and tell him. I just, I like needed to come down from all of that, and really think about it. And so Monday morning I go in and, and Dave's like, so how was the interview? And I said, it was really good. And he said, tell me all about it. And I said, well, they offered me the job. He's like, what? I said, they offered me the job. So what do you mean when you got home? I said, no, while I was there, he's like, and you didn't call and tell me. And I was like, oh, I just had to process it all. And he's like, so what are you going to do? And I go, well, I don't know, what should I do? And he's like, what do you mean? What should you do? Is this your first choice? And I'm like, yes, it's my first choice. He's like, then take it. He's like, don't leave them hanging. You know, that's not nice. Cause I had like a week to think about it. He's like, right. if you want the job, take it now. Let them know how excited you are, which was yeah. great advice by the way. Um, so I called them and accepted the job and it was, it was really nice. Cause the person who, uh, who was the chair of the search committee actually had students in his office when I called and he was like, can I put you on speakerphone? And I said, sure. And so I told him I was taking the job and the students cheered, which was really nice. Awesome. Um, so I started at, at Gonzaga university in Spokane, uh, in their special ed program. I taught undergrad and master students had a really great experience there. Um, we had a Dean that was a little bit challenging to work with and, wasn't a big fan of behavior analysis. So that was always challenging. Um, and at some point I sort of thought I really want to work with doctoral students and a job at Utah State opened up. And uh, so I applied for that job because they had a doctoral program and it was also a very behavior analytic special education program. Um, and I went there for two years. And while I was there uh, on a personal level, I went through a divorce and um, met somebody else who happened to be an alum of that program and we decided we were going to get married and he couldn't really get a job at Utah State um, so we knew that we had to start looking elsewhere and his doctoral degree was in special ed and ed leadership so he really wanted to go be a principal for a while so he took a job at um, at a school district in southern Utah in the Four Corners area at a middle school and I took a job as a staff developer working on the Navajo reservation for a year. Um, I kind of call it my sabbatical year because it really it was my seventh year <laughs> um, and it was like going back into the schools to work amongst the teachers and my job was to teach work with the teachers to be better reading teachers and so we were working on reading skills and that was a lot of fun all the teachers in that building except for two were Navajo. Um, all the kids in that building except for about four were Navajo. Uh, and I just, I learned a lot about cultural diversity. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot about that we're all more similar than we are different. And I had much more in common with the teachers in that building who were a different race than I was, yeah. than I did with the people this town, where I'd worked was like 45 minutes from where I lived and the town where I lived was mostly white, but all Mormon and I'm not Mormon. And, um, so I found that I fit in better actually, uh, down on the reservation. So it taught me a lot about like 
you know, skin color really means nothing. Um, there's so much more to it than that. And I, and the gals down on that reservation were very surprised that I felt more comfortable with them uh, than I did among other groups of individuals. So uh, that was a very good year. Although I will say by about December, I was coming home and saying to Lloyd, I can't do this. I cannot do this. I'm so used to higher education now and having freedoms to come and go um, and be in my office when I want to be in my office and not when the principal tells me to be in my office. Oh, tell me about it. I was completely just, understand. Yeah, it, I couldn't do it. And uh, I said, I really got to go back to higher education. And Lloyd's always been incredibly supportive and gracious to me and said, okay, like, go get a job and I'll follow. Um, and about that time, Bill Heward called me up and said, we've got this job open at Ohio State. Maybe you should apply. And I said, well, let me see the job ad. And it was all learning disabilities and assessment. <laughs> and I, I was going, but I quit doing learning disabilities and did behavior disorders. Um, and he goes, it's okay, just apply for the job. So I did and I interviewed and I got the job and Tim Heron kept all the learning disabilities and assessment classes and people gave up the behavior, uh, behavior analysis classes like the intro to behavioral analysis and they let me create a functional analysis course and they were awesome. Uh, and Lloyd followed me and he had a, a term teaching position um, and they were gonna re-up his term for another term, but he's like, I really don't wanna live my life term to term. That's kind of anxiety producing. and. About that time, Idaho State advertised two tenure line positions, and we applied and, and got those jobs. So we moved out to Idaho and taught out there for five years. Um, and the university there went through a lot of leadership change. We, I think while I was there, uh, I, had, I had two different deans. I had... Um, I think we went through three presidents, three different provosts. Like, so five of the eight vice presidents turned over while I was there and five of the eight deans turned over. And it was wow. just a, it was a difficult environment yeah. to work in for me anymore. So uh, by the last year, I was so unhappy there. I, I, I remember coming home and saying to Lloyd one day, I was driving to work and stopped at the stoplight and some stupid song came on the radio. I don't even know what it was, but I, I started crying at the stoplight as I was heading into work. And I was like, this is not okay. Like people don't cry about going to work. <laughs> so um, at that stoplight in the moment, I said to myself, it's okay. Cause you're not going back to Idaho state next year. And then I felt better and I went to work and I came home that night and told Lloyd that and he was like, really, you're not? Because he loved being in Pocatello and I knew he didn't want to leave. And I said, yeah, but I made a decision today. I'm not going back to Idaho State. He's like, oh, what are you going to do? <laughs> I said, I don't know, but it's not going to be that. Um, <laughs> and if you are hell bent on staying here, you've given up your job for me multiple times. If you're hell bent on staying here, I'll find something else. You know, I'll go wait tables. I'll do whatever. Um, and he was like, okay. And um, there was, I don't know how long winded you want me to be, but there was, no, you're there was a, it, it's, it's another example of serendipity and how weird yeah. things just sort of shape your life. Um, so while we were at Idaho State, there, there was a, 
professor there by the name of Mark Roberts, who was in the psychology department, and he was very, fairly behavioral. I would say he, he did some work in behavior modification. And um, we participated on this team with him called the Interdisciplinary Evaluation Team. And there was a time when I was struggling with being at Idaho State where he and I went out for coffee one day. And I said, I'm really struggling, Mark. I'm not happy here. I, I need to do something else. I don't know what I need to do. Like, do I need to change departments? I was feeling like I needed to be in the health sciences, not in special education. And um, he was talking about how when we did the interdisciplinary evaluation team, Lloyd and I would show up with all these data on these functional analyses, which is something he had not seen special educators do before. And he was blown away by it. And he reached across the table, put his hand on my arm and said, when are you going to face it, Stephanie? You're a psychologist. You're not a special educator. And the sooner you face that fact, the happier you're going to be in life. And I was like, you are so oh. full of crap. You know, <laughs> just, I went home going, what the heck was that all about? Um, but I'll never forget it. I didn't believe him. Um, but like I told you, I was really struggling. I was emotional. I was not happy. And um, so I was looking for jobs just to see what was out there. I, I had this, um, I was on a, one of those services that, you know, send you things from the Chronicle. And for whatever reason, I clicked send me psychology positions also. And I don't remember if I did that before or after that conversation with Mark, but there was a job ad for a position at Western. Um, and it was in the psychology department and I read it and I knew that Jim Carr and Linda LeBlanc had just left Western and were now at Auburn. And so I called Jim and I said, is that your job that they're advertising? Is that the line you were in? Cause it was like for DD and stuff in behavior analysis. Um, and he goes, yeah, that's my line. And, um, I said, like, I got to tell you, had Mark Roberts not said what he said to me, I never even would have attended to this job ad because in my head, I was like, that's in psychology. They'll never even entertain my application because my degree is in special education. So that was what prompted my phone call to Jim. And I was like, do you think I, I should even bother to apply? Would they even consider me given that my degree is in special ed? And Jim said, you should call Wayne, you know, Wayne Fuquay, who was the chair. He said, you should definitely call Wayne and, um, and you should definitely put in an application. So I called Wayne and J Wayne said, yeah, put your application in, you know. I was going to say, and, I can just imagine how that conversation would go. Yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, I love Wayne. I'm biased, mm -hmm. but he's a great guy. <laughs> he's great. Um, and I got like, you can imagine, I'm not going to go into detail, but there were other things going on at Idaho State, and it was very aversive, as would be clear by my crying at a stop sign, <laughs> stoplight. Uh, so um, so I, I called Wayne. Wayne told me to apply. I applied. I interviewed. I was interviewing at other places, too, and I interviewed, and then they offered me the job, and I took it, and it, it was the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life. So I feel like I owe a lot to Jim Carr and Wayne Fuquay, and I tell Wayne all the time that um, I feel like I owe him huge and that 
my, my view of what he did for me was I was in these hellfires and he reached out his hand and pulled me out of them. Um, because I got to tell you, when, when I applied at Western, I didn't list a single reference from Idaho State, um, which is usually a red flag on somebody's job application. <laughs> and um, so when I was interviewing with Wayne, I had said to him, like, uh, yeah, you probably noticed that. And he's like, yeah, I did, you know. <laughs> But, you know, my other references were people like Randy Williams, Betty Williams, Nancy Neef, Bill Heward. Uh, and in reflection, all of those people had degrees from Western, which I didn't really think about <laughs> at the time. I mean, those names in general, I don't think they'd be very good references anyway. But <laughs> it was like... He was like, I'm like, I'm hoping you know all those people well enough to know that whatever they have to say about me is true. And um, I, I told him, you can call anybody you want at Idaho State. I don't, I don't care. I don't know what some people would say about me. I had a lot of friends at Idaho State. But um, anyway, that's all way long story, probably too deep of information and probably a TMI for most people who are listening. But hey, I'm enjoying uh, <laughs> it. I'm enjoying it. But, um, but it, you know, he, he took a chance mm -hmm. on me given that situation. And I, I literally feel like he saved my life on some level. Like he saved my, he helped me have a happy career after that. And uh, that means a lot to me. And I'll, I'll never be able to say thank you to him enough for that. And to my colleagues here at Western, all of them have just been uh, the best colleagues I could ever ask for. And that's also true at, at Ohio State and at Utah State and at Gonzaga. I've been so fortunate to have the most amazing colleagues who have supported my professional development have shown me the way when I needed help seeing the way who have um, provided me with resources. And I don't mean financial resources. I mean, um, you know, just being good colleagues and yeah. looking at research data with me and mm -hmm. criticizing me and my work when it needed to be criticized yeah. and supported me when I needed support mm -hmm. and helped me when I needed help. So uh, I've been very blessed by all of that. And always say that I stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, I, I'm not, I've worked hard in my career for sure, but I could not have accomplished what I've accomplished or done the things that I've done without all of these other people sort of lifting me up and helping me and showing me the way. So I, I owe them a lot. Well, and I just want to remind you too, that you say that about probably the people you would consider thought leaders and those people, and, you know, they've lifted and rose you up and from, you know, this is my point of view, but it's like the same thing you're doing for like my, for like me and like you guys are the inspiration. You're the inspiration for where I want to go and for me to continue to work, to work hard. You know, I had these strong role models to, if I ever, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've probably reached out to you, Jessica, Heather, Doug, Wayne, I've reached out to Wayne, like, and everybody is always there to, for support whenever I needed it as well. So you're doing the same thing. Well, 
thanks for saying that. It's very humbling. Um, <clears throat> I think a lot of all those people I was ref referencing, um, and I think they're far better at most things than I am. So uh, it's very humbling to hear you say that. And earlier you referenced um, the work I'm doing with my students and the students who've graduated. And I also wanted to add that uh, among the people who have lifted me up and supported me throughout my career are my students. And they are, they're, you know, in truth, they're the ones that do all the hard work. I get to sit around and do things like, um, <laughs> hey, you know, it would be fun. Let's go do this. And by let's, I mean you. Uh, <laughs> um, and I will coach you and cheer you on and correct you, but, yeah. uh, but you're going to do all the heavy lifting. And my students have been like, I'm in, you know, and they go off and do it and they do it so much better than I could have done mm -hmm. it, to be honest with you. Um, and it's just fun to watch them grow and mature in their careers. And, um, you know, so, so they're a huge part of any, anything that I can claim as success uh, is not my success. It's their success. It's, it's the other people I've mentioned and their successes that have all helped that to happen. And, um, and so I'm, I'm very proud of the work my students have done, but that's their good work. So uh, that, that's on them, the good work that they've done. <laughs> You've also done your own good work as well, though. Don't sell yourself short. Well, thanks. I've, yes. I've worked hard and I am, I'm yeah. proud of the accomplishments that I have been able to make, but I also recognize they're not just yes. my, my accomplishments, yep. right? They're the compliment, uh, accomplishments of many people. Uh, yes, so. 100 and I 100% 100, <laughs> 100 agree. Thank you for listening to Thought Leaders from Opera Innovations. Come back next month as we ask Dr. Peterson the question, where does she see the field going or where does she want to see the field go? If you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us at operantinnovations at abatechnologies.com.